people call my houses the NASCAR of tiny houses. Every one of them is sponsored. Um, most of them are sponsored. More than 50% of my build costs are covered by sponsored by sponsors, which, by the way, we were talking about the business of house rentals. That means that my return on investment is relatively fast because I'm not investing that much of my own cash. Um, I'm investing a lot of sponsored materials. Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build, and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and this is episode 43 with MJ Boyle. I'm really excited to have MJ on the show today. You might know her as the host of the other Tiny House podcast, but little did you know, MJ is also a tiny house developer of sorts. She built her own tiny house, My Tiny Empty Nest, a few years ago using largely sponsored materials. And she didn't stop there. After finding a great place to park her tiny house, she continued building houses and now has something of an Airbnb empire right in her backyard. In this show, we talk about the realities of what it's like to host tiny houses on Airbnb, and we get into the nitty gritty on that. Like, how do you come up with an agreement with a landowner? How do you deal with the toilet situation, namely the composting toilets in your rentals, and lots more. We also talk about sponsorships and what it's like to work with sponsors to get your tiny houses built for less money. It's a really fun conversation, and I hope you'll stick around. This week's listener shout-out goes to Mike. Mike says, I would like to thank you very much from the bottom of my heart for all the free information you have put out there. I discovered your podcast about a month ago, and I'm currently two episodes away from being current after a binge-worthy plunge into the archives while working. You make the mundane daily rhythm go much smoother, and for that, I thank you. Great guests, great content, keep up the hard work. Well, Mike, I really appreciate it, and thank you so much for listening. I hope you continue listening each week. And for those of you who haven't listened to all the episodes, don't forget to subscribe to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast. When you do, you'll have the option to get all the back episodes. And this is episode 43, so there's lots to catch up on. You can listen in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, CastBox, basically anywhere you can find podcasts, you can find the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast. You can go to thetinyhouse.net slash listen to get quickly redirected or go to your favorite podcast app and search for the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast. And thanks. All right. I am here with MJ Boyle with Empty Nest Tiny Homes. MJ is a proud and outgoing creator and hostess, published author, accomplished speaker, patented adventurer, popular blogger, Craigslist stalker, enthusiastic glamper, the hostess of the Tiny House podcast, as well as a passionate tiny house designer, builder, occupant, and advocate. MJ, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? I'm great. So I'm curious what you mean by Craigslist stalker in that bio. 
Well, I've got two builds going on right now. And when I'm not physically building, of course, the days are really short. So in the evenings, I go on Craigslist and I look at materials. And I that's how I find a lot of the stuff I, you know, get from my tiny houses. So I have one, you know, one exciting story right now. I was looking for a very, very specific kind of heater. And I you know, Googled or I put in the the um, the brand name and they're normally $140 a piece. And I found two of them with the same seller for 50 bucks, brand new. So I saved like well over $200. So, um, and then my I have another project called the My Tiny Wine Wagon, which is actually a framed shell, a tiny house on a 10,000 pound trailer. Uh, that I'm remodeling and kind of revamping, and I found it on Craigslist for a thousand bucks. Wow! And yeah. so, is it going to be like a wine bar, a wine store? What What is it? It's going to be an Airbnb. I'm adding to my little village of Airbnb rentals. Um, I have multiple, so that that is the last one for this location, anyways. That I'm planning, and uh, it's actually going to be wine themed. So my rentals are in the middle of Willamette Valley wine country, just outside of Portland, Oregon, and uh, so it'll be wine themed. Um, so it'll be a short-term Airbnb. Have a queen-size bed, a twin bed. It'll be 22 feet long with an outdoor shower. Cool. Yeah, I'm excited. So tell me about your your rentals. You have one site and how many tiny houses are there? I have one site. Right now, I have four tiny houses on site. Um, one that I live in. I live in mytinyemptynest.com. Um, I also have my first rental was called My Tiny Perch. Dot com. And uh, that's 148 square foot single story rental with a queen size bed. So it's really great because no lofts and ladders and, and people really enjoy it just as a, as a hotel alternative. My second rental is called my tiny bird house. Dot com. <laughs> yes. And uh, that is an astonishing uh, 48 square foot rental. Um, it is absolutely adorable and, uh, it has an outdoor shower and an outdoor barbecue on the indoors. However, it has bunk beds and a, the, I think it's probably the world's ever drawer toilet. Um, so that one is rented out, is currently live right now being rented out. You're actually going to see it on the cover of tiny house magazine in January as well. So awesome. pretty excited about that. Yeah. The third one right now that is, that is on the third rental, which is the fourth house I have on site right now is called my tiny hideout.com. Um, it is a hundred and 19 square feet. So the trailer itself is rather short, only a 14 foot trailer, but it actually has two lofts. So it has a queen size bed as well as a twin bed in the, in the other loft. Ironically, it has the largest indoor bathroom of all of my rentals, including the one that I live in. And probably not this year, but probably next year, I'll have enough money to invest in the railing system and it will have an 18 foot long rooftop deck. Cool. And then uh, tiny house number five, which is actually my sixth build, but it's my fifth one that I own. I actually did a client build this year, which I don't do. But anyway, so that one is called my tiny wine wagon. Dot com. Okay. <laughs> do you detect a theme here? 
I love it. I mean, it makes it really easy to find each each site, each Airbnb listing. Yeah. And so um, that one is what the one I was just talking about. So that's the one that I bought for $1,000 on Craigslist. I am refurbishing it right now. It is actually down south of here in a town called Roseburg. So it's in a shop. I'm, I'm having a contractor help me with the initial uh, dry-in process. Of course, we got to wrap it um, and get the windows in and the doors in because it was actually being used as a cook shack so that the, the windows themselves were really plywood flaps, not proper windows. So, uh, of course adding the bathroom and so forth. So he's, he's, uh, down there in Roseburg, um, shout out for Sean at big timber remodel. He's doing some of the dry in and then we're going to transport it up here in a couple of weeks. So then I, uh, per my usual process, will finish it out. And both the hideout and the wine wagon should be ready, ready for rental, probably in about three months or so. So you do the like the finished carpentry and decor and all that stuff. Yeah. So for my designs, for the ones that I do myself, I do it all in that I design them on a piece of paper with graph paper and a ruler and a pencil, and I start totally from scratch. Um, normally, my houses that I build from my own designs are designed around the trailer that I happen to have, which most of them I found on Craigslist, um, and the pile of windows that I have collected. So I really start with the two really expensive things. I collect windows, I find a trailer, and then I design a house around that. And then the remodels, um, the birdhouse, for instance, was also a remodel. So that was just a lot of, I mean, building the deck, building the shower, that one was by far the easiest and fastest. The wine wagon, um, it's going to require a lot, you know, got to replace the roof and some other stuff. But in general, I always hire out for framing because, first of all, my boyfriend, Mark, is a framer. And so that makes it really easy. So I pay him to do it. And it's that way. It's one less skill. I have to conquer the learning curve. So I always pay for framing. And then I always pay for electrical. Now, the level of electrical kind of changes. As a matter of fact, the hideout just now that I just finished up the electrical, I paid the least amount of money I've ever paid for electrical, and that was $200 to have my ex-husband come help me. So for the first time, I actually pulled the wires and set the boxes and designed the system. So those are the two things I always, always, always hire out for at some level because they're super important and you got to get them right. Obviously, structure, um, you know, and electricity, you get it wrong. It's just super dangerous and you die. So, <laughs> but everything else um, I do myself. So we're talking flooring and siding and paint and appliance install and insulation and interior cladding. I do all my own plumbing. I do my own, I'm doing my own black pipe. Um, this is the second house. I'm doing my own black pipe for propane um, installation as well. So yeah, finished carpentry, decor, hosting. So, when do you sleep? Uh, by the way, I also have a full-time job. I which know, is an interesting, you have a full-time job. Yeah, which is an interesting thing. Most people, when they, they all assume that this is all that I do, I actually do have a full-time job and I traditionally sleep very well and very long. So I'm actually, get, I actually get a lot of sleep, but I'm one of those people that go from 125 miles an hour to zero in two seconds flat. Oh, I'm so jealous. And the other way, you know, like, I mean, it's all about, I think it's really about time management and not just time on the clock, like, you know, Everybody has 24 hours, but there's sunshine, 
and there's dark, there's rain, there's, you know, warm days, there's cold days. And so not just literally managing hour by hour, but allocating what I do in that individual hour based on a number of circumstances. So I'm lucky that I have a full-time job, but I do work remotely, which gives me the opportunity to work when it's dark or when it's raining. Nice. So you're able to prioritize your time based on the best conditions. You know, if it's good, good work, time to be outside, you can go and do that. And then if it's good computer face in front of computer time, you can do that. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, and that I think is the, that's the secret, I guess, to what I'm able to accomplish and the time that I'm able to accomplish it in. And I mean, you know, there's some days I don't even shower, you know, I roll out of bed. I answer a few emails. I I don't know. I mean, for a person that for my entire life, has got up in the morning, taken a shower, put on my work heels, stopped to get coffee on the way to work. You get there, say good morning to like, what a waste of stupid time. The whole construct of sitting in a cubicle is such a waste of time. And now that I don't do it full time anymore, I now recognize that, wow, that is just wrong. (laughs) I so appreciate what I have right now. So I have a few questions about uh, your tiny house village because I know that I see a lot of potential in, you know, renting tiny houses as a business and I get questions about it. And I was curious if you'd be willing to kind of share how the sausage is made a little bit, if you're willing. Sure, sure, sure. So I guess my first question is, is this land that these houses are on, did you have to buy it? Was it hard to find land or, or, yeah, tell me about your land and how you found it. So I found the land um, by doing uh, networking here in town. Um, I live in a small town about 15 miles southwest of Portland, Oregon, which in general is very tiny house friendly. Um, You know, everybody knows what they are and everybody kind of loves them in general. So I was doing some networking and um, the land that I lease, the land that I'm on, actually belongs to the parents of someone that my son graduated from high school with, right? So it is a, I wouldn't say large Christmas tree farm. I think it's like seven acres. And it was actually a Christmas tree farm. And so there's two sections, kind of two halves. One half kind of sits up above and then the gravel road goes down and then there's a lower section, we'll call it. And the lower section was the Christmas tree farm. And so that was part of their side hustle. Well, they raise noble furs and noble furs um, have what's called noble rot. So their furs, um, their trees actually got a disease called noble rot and the noble, the Christmas trees started dying off. Um, so they called in the master gardeners and everybody and they said, look, this is not something that you can easily fix unless you were to completely plow everything under. So they decided to plant timber trees and just let the noble firs, let the Christmas trees kind of die. So the Christmas trees that are left are now 20, 30, not all of them die off, you know, 100%. So the ones that are left are, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 feet tall. 
Um, but it's a nice level, we'll call it kind of a almost meadow kind of uh, um, looking place with these big, tall, 20, 30 foot Christmas trees, beautifully shaped, beautiful Christmas trees. So I put my tiny empty nest um, there, which is the house that I live in, was parked in the upper section. And they used to have an RV there. Um, which is they would use when they sold Christmas trees. So when you, you know, you go pay your money or get your hot chocolate or your axe or your saw or whatever, you would go in the RV and then you would walk down below and get your Christmas tree. That's how the process worked. Well, when they decided to shut down the Christmas tree farm, they got rid of the RV. However, they still had the RV spot, like the level gravel spot with the temporary power pole and the, you know, basically all ready to go. So my uh-huh. house is sitting there where that RV used to sit. Um, so the concept of the rentals themselves was I was walking down below and just kind of exploring a little bit. And I saw this big wire sticking out from underneath the ground, like about 20 foot long white wire sticking out from the ground right next to a freeze proof stand pipe, which is a fancy way of saying water. Um, so I found out that they had actually run water and pi- power to the lower section, to the tree hu- to the tree farm section, because they originally envisioned building a little cabin down there to replace the RV, and they would uh-huh. sell they would sell Christmas ornaments or whatever. But the concept was they had already run power and water down there with the plan that they would light up the Christmas trees and they'd be able to water the Christmas trees and they'd build a little cute Santa's you know cabin. So I was like, well, wait a minute, stop the bus. So that concept, um, my first rental, my tiny perch, um, I said, okay, well, since you can't earn, they, they can't earn money off of the Christmas trees anymore, number one. And number two, the lumber trees that they're planting now won't be harvestable for 20 or 30 years. Um, and my hosts are in their 70s. So I said, well, we can't earn money from Christmas trees. Why don't I put a rental down, a tiny house rental, and I'll share, you know, I'll share the revenue with you. And what do you think of that? And so the first question was, well, is it legal? And I said, well, not really, but, 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 but. So not not legal. It's not not legal, right? And it's getting better. So that's an entirely different conversation. But nonetheless, they were they were somewhat trepidatious at first, as you can well imagine. And I just explained to them that I assume a hundred percent of the risk. If someone says, "Oh, by the way, you can't do this." My investment, for the most part, is in the houses. All of them have wheels, and it would be sad, and it would suck. But if worse comes to worse, I can literally haul my little wheeled empire with me. But in the meantime, they are very much enjoying it, the additional income. That's fantastic. So so the agreement I have with them, I have a flat agreement. So once I have three different levels of agreement. So the first agreement or the first part of the agreement is called the site fee. So the site fee is a flat fee per house. Once the house gets there, then they charge me rent, right? So it doesn't matter if I'm living it, which I do in one. It doesn't matter if I'm building it, which I do in another or what I'm doing with it. Once a tiny house arrives there, I pay them a flat fee, okay? Then there's the next level of fee, which is called the in-service fee. The in-service fee is divided between two different types of tiny houses. There's 
there's tiny houses with indoor bathrooms <laughs> and tiny houses with outdoor bathrooms <laughs> because I can't charge as much for the outdoor bathrooms. So it's called a primitive. So there's a normal tiny house and a primitive. So I have a service fee. I have on season and off season. Does that make sense? So for instance, for an on season tiny house, um, I pay them more, significantly more actually than for an off season primitive house because of course I can't charge as much because people got to go outside for the shower. Although people love outside showers, don't get me wrong. Um, and then the third, if my houses, if any of my houses exceed 50% occupancy in a given month, then they also get a bonus. And that's basically because I was almost a hundred percent booked June, July, August, September almost a hundred percent. That's a lot of people driving up and down the driveway, which by the way, is the only thing that they even see of what's going on is the, the only thing they would notice if they pay attention is there's more cars on the road, but they don't go down to the lower section. They don't really interact. They don't hear anybody or see anybody. So if, um, if I have really high occupancy, then they make even more money in the form of a bonus. I was curious and I, I'm I'm blushing to ask this question because it's what we all joke about that everybody wants to know about tiny houses. But in the rental <laughs> game, who deals with the poop? Because I saw it. So in the in the tiny perch, you have the drawer toilet, and that looks like a, a sawdust toilet. What do you? That's the birdhouse. Okay. Does have the sawdust toilet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So who are? You, do the guests have to empty that? Like, do you give them instructions, or or does your cleaner do it, or you do it? So in the perch, I have the nature said composting toilet and I have um, a laminated, very thorough nine step process for how to use the composting toilet. So once, however, between guests and if the guests are there long enough, actually, it's while they're there, then either myself or my house cleaner will come in and maintain the nature's head toilet. So what's most fascinating to me about, about my guests so far is that some of them are just brilliant at it and they take it seriously and they get it and it is sparkling clean. Yes, it needs to be emptied, but it's sparkling clean. They've used it exactly per the instructions and it's very lovely. Other guests, specifically males, um, refuse to follow the directions. And the directions are very simple. Either A, you can sit down to pee or you can go outside. Like, that's it. Those are your options. But there are some gentlemen that decide, hey, wait a minute. On a nature's head, there's a, there's a flap that you open for and sometimes they'll be like well what can I just go in there you know and so they will decide that they know better and so they will pee in the solids container which creates the least lovely soup you have ever Ooh. like yeah it's a it's a huge mess it's happened about three times it really makes me upset but again that's really the worst of it like and, and again, it's just a matter of it just smells bad. The, 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 em, the process of emptying it and the process of cleaning it is still relatively easy. It hap it's the same whether or not it's beautiful and clean versus soupy and smelly. It's the same process, um, which I can explain if you want to. But um, So that's that. I have a nature's head in the perch. And then in the 
birdhouse, I have the drawer toilet. Now it is a cedar toilet, but what I do is I set it up in layers. So picture this, I have a bucket, which is in a box, right? With a nice little, um, you know, toilet seat on it. So it feels and looks normal. Um, I have a bag and then I have two diapers in the bottom and then I have about two cups of sawdust and then I have a bag and then a couple of diapers and then some sawdust and then a bag and then a couple of diapers and some sawdust. So the guests in that particular case, the guests will use it and they are instructed to put cedar, they have additional cedar shavings on top of their deposit. Um, or if they prefer, right, if, if what they have produced is more aromatic than they would like to tolerate, <laughs> then all they do is just take that bag, you know, zip up that bag, and there's a garbage can right outside, and then they zip up the bag, put it in the garbage outside, and the next one is ready to go. So um, for that one, it's actually way easier on the guests and way easier on the house cleaners because, like, we don't care what your deposit looks like. We're going to handle it the same way. So, yeah. So that, however, that creates an inordinate amount of garbage, which is why I really prefer, believe it or not, to use the nature's head because with the nature's head, the, the liquid deposit gets gets diluted and um, spread for fertilizer. And the solids deposit is the only garbage that's created. And that's only every couple of weeks um, under normal circumstances, as opposed to, of course, with the cedar, with the cedar one, you know, it could be a garbage bag or a bag of garbage every day. Um, and so it's just, it's, Again, it's it's kind of it depends on what your perspective is, right? If I was really selfish and I didn't care about you know the garbage, then I would have cedar toilets in all of them because it's infinitely easier when it comes to that. Right, but it, it it's got to feel kind of not okay knowing that you're just filling up garbage cans full of pee and poop in Ziploc bags. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And um. And it's just, it just feels irresponsible. Now, <laughs> I say that when, here's another thing about, about tiny houses and my tiny houses in general, all of my time, right now I'm running two tiny houses on 20 amps of power, right? I am, I have a hundred percent plant-based, biodegradable, gray water friendly, soaps, shampoos, cleaners, I mean, everything. So for someone that, like me that lives so minimally, I, I should probably forgive myself and go, Hey, <laughs> this is my, this is my vice. I'm going to create garbage. But I just, I feel as if it's, you know, sort of not very authentic for me to unapologetically create garbage. If there's a different way to handle it, albeit slightly more inconvenient for my house cleaners or me, but it's, it's a way more responsible way of handling it. Well, that's great to hear that you that people are able to handle the sawdust kind of style toilet. Cause I've always thought about, Oh, maybe I could Airbnb my tiny house when I'm not there. And the, you know, I just have the classic humanor sawdust toilet. And that's the one thing where I'm like, I don't know if people can handle it. And I also don't know if I want to empty someone else's sawdust bucket, like doing, doing my own, you know, me and my wife plus whatever guests we might have. Okay. That's fine. It's like it's like known poop, but 
unknown poop right. just feels really <laughs> feels really scary. And isn't and isn't that funny that we feel that way? Isn't that funny that we that we feel that way? But um, so I will also say that whenever someone sends me a request on, and by the way, I don't just rent out via Airbnb. I've had actually six different uh, platforms. So whenever I get a request that says we, you know, we want to stay there, the first thing I do before anything else is I tell them as a gentle reminder, we have a dry flush toilet or we have, I call it a cedar loo style toilet. So first things first, I tell them as a gentle reminder, this is what we have. May I assume that you have used one or that you're okay using them per the instructions provided. So the first message they get from me is you're staying in a tiny house. This is, you know, they obviously know it's going to be different. And I personally think that that is one of the, I guess you would call it the best. It's probably not the best adjectives, but again, maybe the most authentic uh, a tiny house experience. Yeah. I mean, you're giving people an experience that will most likely be their experience if they do decide to live tiny. Do you right. get a lot of guests who say that, Hey, I'm checking this out because I am interested in, in living tiny myself. About, I would say it's a, it's a vast minority. I would probably say between 20 to 25%. Um, so 20 to 25% of the people come stay because they're really thinking about it seriously. They want to try it on. They want to, you know, plus I have an amazing, amazing library of books. Almost every tiny house book that's ever been published from, you know, by all the wonderful people we know and love, um, is in my tiny house libraries. So people also see the library and the pictures, and they're like, oh, I'm going to go sit in a tiny house and I'm going to read all these books from all these people that I follow online. And so that's a great experience for them. So about 20 to 25 percent over, I would say the next chunk would be 50 percent of the people love the love the concept of staying in a tiny house because they've seen it on TV and they want to tell their girlfriends and da, 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 da. So that's a big chunk of it, too. Um people that are curious about it. And then, then there's another minority, probably about 25% or so. They just think it's a cool place to stay and it's cheaper than Motel 6. Sure. Why not? You know, it, exactly. I can stay in Motel 6, which is four miles away. I always make sure my rates are about $5 cheaper than Motel 6. Um, so I also allow same day bookings. I allow single day bookings and I also allow pets, which those three things are very unusual in the, in the rental industry in general. It takes a lot of hustle to allow same day bookings and single night bookings, because that means as soon as the person checks out, <clears throat> you have to clean it. It has to be sitting ready at all times. Right. For the next person. Because you don't know the next person could be calling at three o'clock in the afternoon and say, we're on our way up the freeway. Instead of staying at the local motel, we're going to stay with you. We'll be there in, you know, 45 minutes. Right. And you're at work or you're, well, you work from home. So you can kind of say, okay, let me just go make sure it's right. ready. Which is another thing. Actually, one of the biggest surprises out of this whole thing has been, I'm very surprised, easily 75 to 80% of my guests do self-check-in. They... I don't even see over 50% of my guests and 70 to 80% of my guests say, Nope, I'm fine. Like I, 
I have the instructions. I have the book. I'll let you know. And then I'll probably see them because I'm working or I have another guest checking in or, you know, I'm down below at the lower section a lot. So I'll see them and I'll talk to them. But almost especially during off season, I don't even see half of them. They self-check in. They text me when they check out. They call me. I always send them a text message 24 hours after they check in to make sure. It's amazing that guests will try not to bother me. It's like, this is not a, you know, they'll be like, oh, by the way, can you bring another towel? Like, yeah, no problem. So that makes it super nice that I'm, you know, a couple hundred feet away. So I bop down the hill and take a mist, you know, towel. And if I haven't met them, then we always end up chatting. But a lot of times, especially during off season, people just kind of want to do their thing and mind their own business. And I'm okay with that. And um, so far, no major drama. I've had a couple of minor dramas, but no major drama, really. It sounds like you've got an awesome business. And, you know, the the addition of the four season house that will allow you to to rent through the winter, I, I think you're gonna, I think 2019 is gonna be huge for your business. I think so. I'm, I'm I'm super, I mean, last year, oh man, I cannot tell you even how much I spent last year. Well, I'll tell you, I, w- I spent over $30,000 in build and hospitality expenses, uh, well over $30,000 last year in 2018. Um, but that's because I've been building like a mad woman. And so now it's time for me to 2019 will be the year to reap the rewards. Right. To recoup the costs. Exactly. And so, however, when you start to do the math, it has actually, it's pretty exciting. Um, You know, my rates, my on season rates, my cheapest tiny house probably will be the birdhouse. Um, That's the 48 square foot one. It'll probably be, I don't know. It kind of depends on the, the economy and everything, but it'll probably be 75 to $85 a night midweek. And then eighty-five to ninety dollars a night weekend. My most expensive one will probably be eighty-five to ninety-five midweek and one hundred and five weekend. So when you do the math and then you figure out I've got four houses and it, let's say I have you know seventy-five to eighty percent occupancy, which is what I had last year for June, July, August, September. In fact, I didn't even dip below fifty percent occupancy until December. And December, I actually had 49% occupancy. So the math is super exciting. And I look forward to, again, recouping those expenses because this year was really expensive. What are your other uh, kind of businesses under the Empty Nest Tiny Homes umbrella? Because you mentioned that you did a client build. Yes. So this year, I did a really exciting, fun, cool, stressful, drama-filled client build. Uh, So here in Portland, we have a showcase of homes that is called Street of Dreams. And it's been going on for 37 years. And it's sponsored by the natural gas company. It's called the Northwest Natural Gas Street of Dreams. And every year they take a cul-de-sac in a brand new neighborhood and they build out these massive mansions. So they're Three, four, five, six thousand square foot mansions. I think they mandate that the minimum selling price is two point five million, um, and they build out five, six, or seven of them in a cul-de-sac. Right. So these houses are um, known to be the best of the best. They're built by the best 
builders. They're designed by the best architects. They have tech that is, you know, the best tech, the best products, the best decor, everything. This is the best of the best that this entire region has to offer. So they open up that cul-de-sac for a month and they charge $35 a piece ahead. And the people come tour these mega mansions. So it's run by the Home Builders Association. And this year they decided that they wanted to have a tiny house. So throughout, through my connections, through my networking connections, I was chosen to be the first and ever and only uh, builder of a tiny house for the Street of Dreams. So there was six massive mansions and my 200 and square foot tiny house. Her name was Amelia and she was built with a 100% sponsored um, time and material and labor. I, I did make a builder's fee. So I, I got paid as the builder and the project manager, but most, um, most of the $145,000 that I spent $45,000 tiny house <laughs> on a 204 square foot tiny house, single story. Wow. Where can we see this? This is it made of gold? No, I'm just <laughs> I got to check my notes here real quick. I got to okay. check because I can't remember which, which, um, well, you've, you've done a lot of work with sponsors. I remember that you funded your first build with, with some sponsorships. Yeah, correct. I, well, I actually still do all of my houses are sponsored, but Amelia was actually sponsored by all of the builders, the contractors, the subcontractors at the street of dreams themselves. So Northwest natural gas, for instance, as a sponsor of the event was also a sponsor of the house. They provided the natural gas fireplace. And that was what was really unusual there were so many things that were unusual about Amelia. The first, the first, of course, was she is the first and only uh, tiny house that's actually powered by natural gas, um, which was the reason why they chose me. Part of the reason why they chose me, because even though I'm not a quote unquote commercial builder, right? I don't build them commercially. I don't build them and sell them. Uh, I build them and keep them. <laughs> so I was able to really think outside the box and incorporate all of the appliances that were uh, powered by Northwest Natural Gas at the event. And then they are all field convertible to propane for the owner that bought it. So it was built with 100% sponsors and then sold and the proceeds went to benefit veterans in Oregon. And the website for those pictures are actually um, emptinesttinyhomes.com. Uh, I put her pictures there because that was when I actually launched that official house builder brand and logo. And, and that was, there was so much press, there was so much involved. So from the time that I drew her on paper to the time that she was open to the public was five months. Wow. That's fast. And a, well, and a hundred percent sponsors. So I was working with 75 sponsors and dealing with sponsors is a lot like dealing with volunteers, right? It, there's a difference between, um, dealing with employees and dealing with volunteers, right? There's a whole different level of dynamic and workflow. And in this case I had 75 sponsors and it was so stressful. <laughs> oh my God. Um, but 
she was the first one ever at the street of dreams. And, um, and matter of fact, she was so popular with the different press outlets that the street of dreams, um, the first week into this, the event itself, the street of dreams management told the press, uh, no more tiny house. Like, Y'all have talked about the tiny house. Everybody knows it's here. Now we need to give our other builders some press too, (laughs) (laughs) which was super, super embarrassing. Um, But very, I mean, obviously I'm really proud of that, but it was also embarrassing because, you know, some people obviously didn't get it. They're like, what's the point? Well, why would I do this? But by and large, the public was stunned. The public was impressed, and uh, they thought it was one of the one of the best things the event has really done in a long time. Well, the house is gorgeous. I'll definitely link to everything we've talked about in the show notes. And I feel like I could just go on talking with you for for hours. I think I might need to have you back on the show so we can do an entire episode about working with sponsors because you know that's like a, i've heard you give that talk before and that's a whole nother can of worms to open yeah people call my houses the nascar of tiny houses every one of them is sponsored um most of them are sponsored more than 50% of my build costs are covered by sponsored by sponsors which by the way we were talking about the business of house rentals that means that my return on investment is relatively fast because I'm not investing that much of my own cash. Um, I'm investing a lot of sponsored materials. So uh, again, going back to the, the business part of the discussion on the rentals, my tiny perch has already, she already paid for herself in the first six months. I'm guessing that you have different agreements with each of these sponsors that you need to either help promote their brands or, you know, put a pamphlet in the house? I mean, what, how does that usually work? Uh, All the above. Really, again, it's all about the sponsors and what they need and what they want. One of my biggest, most enthusiastic repeat sponsors um, has actually been a local lumber company called Mr. Plywood. They love and need and enjoy um, social media content. So they're pretty social media savvy. You know, they're on Instagram, they have Facebook, they have a website. So in their case, it's a lot about being a walking, talking advocate and giving them social media content. Um, Nature's Head has also been one of my sponsors as well. So I just paid them back by explaining to the entire world (laughs) exactly how their toilet works and how much I love it and how well it works not only for me, but for my guests. So I become a walking, talking kind of advocate, but every sponsor really has a different, a different goal in mind. And we work together to, uh, to figure out what I can do for them. And it's, it's a relatively, it's a win-win. Most of the time it's in kind. So they give me products. I have gotten cash sponsors before. I've actually had other tiny house builders. Um, shout out to Big Heart Tiny Homes. Um, that have actually also sponsored me um, to help advertise their products and their company and be an advocate for their builds as well. Nice. Well, I want to be respectful of your time. And there's a question that I like to ask all of my guests, um, which is what are two or three resources? So, you know, maybe some books from that 
tiny house library of yours or even people or YouTube channels, just resources that really helped you along the way on your builds builds that you want to share with, with our audience? Well, the first one I want to shout out to, let me see, what's the author's name here? Uh, Ethan. Oh, Tiny House Decisions from ah. Ethan Walden. <laughs> so um, shout out to you. Uh, I really, really appreciate the the technical nature of your book. And uh, I definitely, it's, I don't have it in hard copy, um, but I definitely have just uh, enjoyed that one. Um, and then let me see the other resource. Well, actually I'll save the next resource for our conversation on sponsors. So I'm not going to tell you that one right now. Okay. Um, let me see. Um, oh, this is, this is an interesting question. Different resources. Um, okay. So the first book is tiny house decisions. The second one, the second one is a website, tiny house build. Andrew and Gabriella Morrison. Andrew and Gabriella Morrison. Love them. And then the third one is anything written by Deke or Derek Diedrichson. Um, he's got several books. Um, so, yeah, anything written by the Morrisons and anything written by Deke. Nice. I, I wholeheartedly um, promote and support all of those resources. I, I'm, I feel really uh, passionate and thankful that not only do I get to, you know, shout out to them, they're friends, you know, we talk, we meet, we hang out. These are people that I enjoy spending time with and have grown to know that, that they have an, they have integrity and knowledge. And I feel blessed and humble to be included even amongst amongst, you know, their friends. And it's, this is the part where I get emotional when I talk about all the people that I've met, yourself included, and, and got the opportunity to form relationships with. Well, uh, the feeling is mutual. And uh, MJ Boyle, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. This was so much fun. Thank you. I had a good time. I appreciate it very much. You can find the show notes, including links to all the resources that MJ mentioned at thetinyhouse.net slash 043. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash 043. And before we go, I want to let you know that I've made something new that I want to share with you. Not everyone is cut out for tiny house living. And so I decided to make a fun, short quiz to help determine if a tiny house is right for you. If you're already sold, you can go over to thetinyhouse.net slash quiz. It's free to take and it's fun. In addition to finding out if a tiny house is right for you, you also will learn if you're best suited for a tiny house on wheels, a school bus conversion, a groundbound tiny house, or if you're best suited for the van life. I had a lot of fun making the quiz, and I think you'll enjoy taking it. It only takes a minute or two. So to take the tiny house quiz, go over to thetinyhouse.net slash quiz. Again, it's a free quiz. Is a tiny house right for you at thetinyhouse.net slash quiz. That's all for this week's show. I'm Ethan Waldman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast.